Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. This is Chris. I just wanted to introduce this as part two of our Gothic Marxism and Marxist Romanticism episode. So, if you have not yet listened to part one from last week, go back and do that before you listen to this. We start off with concern number four from the Gothic Marxist Rubric of Concerns. A dehierarchization of the epistemological privilege accorded to the visual in the direction of the integration of the senses dreamed of by Marx in the 1844 manuscripts, that being the complete emancipation of all human senses and qualities. So, okay, so to go back to, like, the philosophical dualism that I was talking about earlier, which is, I don't know, this is the tradition I'm schooled in, this is where my mind goes anyway, is a feature of that dualism in contemporary philosophy is, uh, uh, is as it's instantiated in in the uh, philosophy of mind, the investigation into the nature of consciousness, there's a feature uh, or an aspect of, of, of that philosophical investigation that talks about things that, at least in the analytical tradition, are termed qualia. Qualia are the ineffable substance of experience. Uh, and it's, it's kind of hard to say, conci- to, to talk about this concisely, because uh, the nature of something being ineffable is a thing that can't be spoken of or directly referred to with language. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the 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 idea is that it's um, uh, experience itself, and experience itself is the nature uh, at being this thing that can't be rendered into words and transferred to someone else is what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the objective subjective dichotomy, the dualism between the uh, the spiritual and the material, the ideal mm-hmm. and uh, uh, material. So. To talk about the uh, dehier, how do you fucking say this word? Dehierarchization. Dehierarchization. One extra syllable. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. I left a syllable out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, making not hierarchy of <laughs> the epistemological privilege uh, accorded to visual, uh, to the visual in the direction of the integration of the senses, is to talk about the various different qualia that exists in human experience, which involves multiple different senses, uh, lots of different senses, not just the five senses that are laid out, touch, smell, whatever. There's, there are a whole lot of other senses as well, but each of these exist as a, a separate kind of qualia. Um, and at least evolutionarily primates uh, are, are heavily dependent on, on their vision, and so uh, visual acuity is a, a major part of the primate mind. So it makes sense that there yeah. would be an epistemological privilege afforded to visual uh, qualia. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's a long roundabout way of saying is I, I'm not really sure what this point is trying to get at by trying to say that we shouldn't prioritize visual experience. It's just I think again as a corrective to completely dismissing that which cannot be qualified by our immediate, our five rational senses, yeah. senses, senses we use to rationalize phenomena. Uh, and as a corrective to 
scientism, essentially. Affording that which is not within those first five senses a sort of more elevated sense of importance. Well, yeah, like, so this is why I, I find myself kind of going back and forth between using the word gothic and using the word romantic. Um, it's, it's, I mean, yes, you know, it's, there's enough yeah. overlap to where I think it's, it's appropriate. But, like, when you think about, like, the essence of romanticism, it's like when somebody experiences that, like, uh, the deep joy of Eden, the, uh, the sublime, right? The, the, like, that kind of moment when you have, like, an engagement with beauty and then you spend basically the rest of your life as a, you know, a poet or a musician or whatever trying to, like, impart that sense that is basically impossible to, like, you can't just say, look at that sunset isn't it pretty because it just completely defies and it, it like it, it it so cheapens the experience that that sublime experience of like that kind of oneness with the with beauty as a as a as a phenomena as an ephemeral phenomena which is why there are like reams and reams of poetry essentially trying to like impart a sense of, of, of feeling that like rationalism hasn't equipped us to do right the reason why like romanticism is is a reaction to the enlightenment um is because there is more to the human experience right to the to a species being than just that looks pretty that feels nice etc right that there's something you know that like the reason why we have a concept of heaven is not because it's not only because bad stuff happens to us and so there must be a place where good stuff happens to us because if we don't have that conception, then we will we'll all kill ourselves, right? Like that's the that's the strictly rationalist understanding of the thing. But but the other right. element of it is that the human soul creates within us, or not the human soul, but what we call the soul, right? But like there's something within us that creates the concept of heaven, right? In the natural world as we experience. And uh, well, like we said this, you know, earlier when we were first talking that like. We have a. We have to get back to a way in which we can speak to the entirety of the human experience, and not just mm -hmm. the way in which, like a strictly rationalist, bureaucratically ordered, scientific uh, way would do. Well, and I and I think what's interesting is the way we have inadvertently, by trying to have this like deep commitment to having a dialectical and materialist approach to. Um, to the way we analyze things, and the you know. The way we understand the world, the way the world works, is we have replicated so much of what capitalism does to us in our own spaces and circles. And I think one of the most interesting things going on right now is this whole, like, right wing. Even though they're bad at it, right? But like, adaptation of that, you know, in the form of like, facts don't care about your feelings, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which is right. More or less even though I think we're better at it and we're mm -hmm. writer at it, more yeah. or less what we've been saying since the inception of Marxism, right? So, like, yeah. I think we have to figure out a way <laughs> to be less shitty. And part I mean, of I that guess. is being more goth, right? So, you know, I yeah, I'm going to have a lot of feelings, or I'm going to let oh, me yeah. tell you. I uh, had an anecdote that I wanted to use to sort of underscore what Jason was talking about. And that is whenever I was in Austria, which is 
I, I've been fascinated with my entire life with um, the mountains, the forests, and things that I didn't get enough of as a child growing up in South Texas. Um, snow, um, <laughs> you know, things like that. So I went to Austria last winter, not last winter, the previous winter, and uh, I was on top of a mountain, and I was looking down at a city in a valley, and I'm guessing it was somewhere near like 12 or 13 degrees Fahrenheit, and all of a sudden I get, there's this gust of wind that hits me, and uh, it's just piercing cold, just cuts through my clothing, into my soul, is how it felt, you know, and I really felt, it was a spiritual feeling, there's no way I can explain it other than to say that I was really communing with whatever, I don't know, the universe, um, uh, that that was a religious mm-hmm. experience, and I understand if that's if that's religion, then you know that's my religion. You know, I guess. Well, you know that's that's that old time religion. It's the reason why people like that... worship the sun and worship the rain and worship the wind. And I remember remarking to my wife Brittany um, something like, "I I just I really understand the connection to land." Mm-hmm. And the the place where you are from and the place where your ancestors grew up and died that fascists mm-hmm. fetishize, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I understand that it's there. It's, it's there in all of us. Um, so I understand the impulse that the fascists appeal to. And it's and it's it's not tangible. And it's they say ineffable. blood and soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ineffable. It's it's uh, libidinal. It's a libidinal connection, and that when the the fascists use that, and um, yeah, well, yes, no, th- we ignore it. We fucking exactly. Ignore it. This this is it's um it's a uh, it's a, a potentially at least it's at an at least potentially contested territory that we mm-hmm. far too frequently just cede to the to the right. That like this is exactly the problem with so much uh, of left cultural uh, engagement is that it. It just says, uh, uh, well, the right likes this thing, so it's theirs. And anybody who likes it is bad. You, right. Just, it's, if there's something that is speaking to an aspect of, of your humanity, of someone's humanity, why are you giving that to the right? Right. It doesn't belong um, to them. I mean, I'm not. So, <laughs> I mean, yes, so, yeah, exactly. you know, I, I'm Mexican, so... Uh, Catholicism and the remnants of our indigenous culture that that was like stolen from us was like, I mean, I I can't escape that. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was just going to talk about like midnight mass. Um, I don't believe in any of the teachings of the Catholic church, but there is something that appeals to me libidinally whenever I go to church Mm -hmm. on Christmas Eve with my grandma. I I used to take my grandma to church on Christmas Eve and it was something that appealed to me very, very deeply that, that I, that I couldn't explain. I couldn't help, but be incredibly moved by mm-hmm. the liturgy. And, uh, it's something that the Christian teachings and the Catholic teachings that I grew up in and around make me want to be a better communist, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and that's something vulgar Marxists don't understand and try to drive out of people. Right. Well, and in that sense, and I'm not a Catholic. I'm not even a Christian. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that sense, the the function, like psychologically, uh, of like trying to basically drive out people's 
uh, desire to overcome longing, right? Like sinsucht is the German word for like an intense yearning or like ennui, right? Which is like this, that's the feeling you feel once you have experienced that kind of divine beauty. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to like recreate that moment or like feeling alienated from nature, right? Because of the nature of our society. Um, the, 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 the effect of trying to drive that out of people isn't any different than the effect of trying to make people into productive workers or um, mm. the, the effect that like standardized testing has on a child's mind, right? Like the left should not be the people who are trying to like cut, you know, to like cut out feeling essence mm -hmm. because you're right. Mm -hmm. When we, when we see that territory, the fact that everyone feels it, means that everyone is a potential not just rightist but like you know uh everyone is a, is a potential recruit to the reaction right mm -hmm. so like the left especially your... the sophisticated rick yes especially the sophisticated um and it occurs to me that like there are over the last like century there have been a number of different approaches to this same project like when when the existentialists you know, especially the better ones, the ones that become Marxists, talk about, you know, trying to like live in good faith, right? To like, live authentically. Or when the situationists talk about like constructing yeah. these like situations, right? These like moments of genuine, like unfettered uh, connectivity and, and, and true freedom and, and the reconnection of like the human essence to between each other and to oneself. It's not any different than what we're talking about now. It's like this is a... a every generation we kind of return to this like need to essentially like fuse back together the other half of the project which is not strictly rationalist which does allow for and make space for that which cannot be quantified so jason when we were in uh poland in the czech republic did you uh get the same sort of religious kind of feeling that i did when we were at both the monuments to the communist partisans, as you did when mm -hmm. we were walking in, running inside of cathedrals. Yeah. Well, and, um, <laughs> the, yeah, I was going to say it's, it's, it's similar, like monuments to like the, the partisans and also the flowing waters of the Vlatava had like a similar oh, yeah. effect on my like senses, you know, because exactly. Uh, I don't know if there's anything more beautiful than like, a river or the ocean right or like this like I could, get, I could get really really off topic and just talk about how great it is to like you know to 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 reconnect with you know the, the sort of primordial place where we all come that i think is like embedded in our in our in our consciousness which yeah. is why i really like exactly the the situation is slogan the uh, under the under the paving stones the beach which is like it which is to say that like this world is anti-human Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. you know and a rejection of it and an overturning of it is to rediscover uh, that which is human that that which is natural. The left desperately needs to reread Paulo Freire in a way that uh, more honest about you know what we mean when we use words like ontological vocation and <laughs> you know how education and that should mean political education as well. The objective of it should be to get us closer to the things that make us feel the most human and the most purposeful. Right. Um, and, and I think we do a bad job 
of of the practical application of those ideas and and you know that that the the what we do a bad job in is you know that's uh, the recruiting ground for our, our opponents right yeah which which is uh-huh. under the under the paving stones the beach is i think a precisely uh this the the sentiment that anti-civ folks are are tapping into okay so one of the things we haven't yet talked about that i would like to talk about a little bit is horror and the contemporary usage of horror as a method of understanding and interpreting culture from a Marxist point of view that treats low culture as socially meaningful instead of just dis- dismissing it. So like the the China Mieville slash lit crit guys usage of gothic themes to understand and convey points that they would like to make about culture. And um, we haven't really talked about that very much. And I think that that's what a lot of people who are tuning in are going to expect us mm-hmm. to talk about. Mostly we've been, we've been talking about um, the Gothic Marxism as understood in the Walter Benjamin mm-hmm. sense, you know, mm-hmm. which I think is, I'm, I'm definitely uh, here for both. So, I think that China Mieville's uh, talk at the Socialism Conference was uh, really the most interesting piece on 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 this uh, subject, where he tries to ground horror, dread. I think is the term that he the the precise term that he uses to, to articulate it in in the in an essence of what it means to be human, and thus uh, a necessary aspect of. Uh, Marxism and and uh, any any sort of uh, uh, justified uh, dialectical materialism and uh, I and I found his point incredibly compelling, uh, really interesting. Where he was saying that dread, uh, he says it so much more eloquently than I could possibly put it. But he he talks about how uh, uh, <laughs> using the example of the octopus co- uh, holding uh, carrying a coconut shell, a, a fundamental feature of what it is to be human, a higher order of consciousness, is the ability to conceive of possible different futures Mm -hmm. to imagine to be capable of imagining the future Uh, the the thing that doesn't exist not just as you want it to be but as you fear it to be as you uh dread it to be as as the 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 the, uh, um uh, fear conjoined with the ineffable right like the 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 thing that you uh, that you can't articulate that can't, you can't quite understand or grasp but you dread it that is a feature that's an aspect of uh, a higher order of consciousness as he argues it and I think that that's uh, really interesting and it's it's also a feature of uh, the project of Marxism which is reimagining ourselves and our society and what it could be given what we have necessarily entails an imagination of what we dread so sort of like a uh, lovecraftian death cult (laughs) where (laughs) we want to summon the elder gods to destroy us yeah absolutely because it's better than this (laughs) 
<laughs> well, look, like when uh, when <laughs> when Fisher talks about the uh, this like slow cancellation of the future uh, of the like that's the the this sort of the defining feature of capitalist realism is the inability to uh-huh. um, you know to to conjure up an image of the future uh, the dehistoricizing of experience so that what is is what was and what will be right like that's that's what's at stake i guess um is an an unwillingness or an inability to uh confront and embrace the dread i i'm not exactly sure how i'm trying to put this but it's like uh we whatever we do this at our at our peril right that the our our inability mm-hmm. to confront to, and embrace the dread and the darkness and and thus to imagine a, a a horrifying future also you know if it enfeebles our ability to 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 imagine the the way in which to construct a better future in in opposition to that potential horrifying future which is to say that like it's a feature of the neoliberal landscape it is a it is a it is it's threaded all throughout the culture of the world that we live in today. And I think it's, um, you know, it's like you are meant to be a passive spectator of your own life rather than, you know, like an engaged participant. And, you know, horror, the, the gothic, the romantic is a is a fulcrum, I think, you know, into which we can begin to at least like re-engage. Yeah, I don't I don't have a I'm basically thinking this out loud, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, no. So, um, to something really interesting. That sort of brings us back around to pessimism mm-hmm. again, um, and that's and back around to back around to uh, Benjamin, who saw the the need for an. What, what I guess uh, I, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says we will have an organized pessimism or death. Or organized pessimism or death is the alternate name of this podcast. that's my side project (laughs) pessimism is the effective point of convergence between surrealism and communism Mm. and surrealism specifically being adopted by benjamin here as just a wholehearted embrace of the Mm -hmm. weird and the uh inexplicable and all of the things that we were talking about before and the weird, and the, the weird and the eerie, yeah, that Mark Fisher book, which I started reading for this, but didn't get around to it because I was reading three other books and fourteen articles, but uh, is as far as three chapters in, is fucking great. Kevin's making a crying <laughs> face at me, but yeah, so um, organized pessimism, just being able to conceive of utter annihilation and the horrors of failing, mm-hmm. and uh, is in, it's incredibly important to helping us understand what's at stake and talking about Mark Fisher. Um, there's this pretty cool quote that will, I think bring us back around to the track that I would like us to be on right now is that capital is an abstract parasite, an insatiable vampire and a zombie maker, Mm -hmm. but the living flesh it converts into dead labor is ours and the zombies it makes are us. So I would like to talk more about the utilization of, horrific images and images of like gothic images in understanding the occult forces of Mm. capitalism um and when i say occult forces i don't mean anything cool like magic and cool rituals and stuff like that i mean specifically all right one of the things that is occluded by capitalism is 
labor through uh, commodity fetishism. So I think one of the examples that's used very often by people who talk about Gothic Marxism is when you walk into a store and you buy a pair of shoes or you buy your cheap clothing, you don't see the labor that it took to create it. Um, You only see the Mm -hmm. commodity. The commodity is completely divorced from the laborer who created it, who is in most instances in the United States, when we buy clothing, we're buying it from someone who worked in horrific conditions in a sweatshop in Bangladesh or something like that. Right. So the, the labor that this, that this person did has become dead labor and is now embodied only in this commodity. So we see the commodity as the thing and ignore the laborer and laborers labor. And one of the things that Gothic Marxism does is attempt to reveal that relationship um, by conveying it in images of horror, right? So dead labor is like a vampire that feeds upon living labor in order to perpetuate itself. Yeah, I mean, that that's from Capital. I mean, so like, you know, there are, there are passages in Capital that make your head spin if you are um, an ADD reader uh, because they're like formulaic and it's like, you know, when he's basically trying to get at like value theory, which is a not unimportant part, I would say. You know, like you can't really fully understand the world that we live in if you don't have a like a basic working knowledge of 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 this, right? But late, also in Capital Marx, I think like quite presciently utilizes this language uh, in a couple of different ways, very brutal, like and colorful, sort of like he paints a picture. You know, he says like a capital emerges in, onto the. I don't, I don't remember. I'm gonna paraphrase it. But he says capital emerges onto the scene, like dripping from from head to toe, from every orifice in blood and dirt. Like you didn't have to say it that way. Right? He didn't. He could have just been like, you know, there's a very like rationalist scientific under, way of like explaining exploitation, uh, the, the the origin of surplus value and so on. But he like utilizes this imagery that g- gets right at the gut. On purpose, I think. A, because he knows how horrific the world is, and B, because he knows that we know how horrific the world is, and you know that there's a there's almost like a populism in this taking formula and political economy and and, and translating it into the language of like the common language that is in the Victorian era of a uh, of horror. I really liked the characterization of wage labor by David McNally as an experience of living mm-hmm. death. Lack of autonomy, lack of animation, lack of control, lack of creativity, and lack of human expression. So as Marxists, I think one of our mm-hmm. foundational things that we we come to grasp is that the exercise of labor power is the worker's own life activity. Under capitalism, his life activity is for him only a means for him to be able to exist. It is a commodity which he has made, which he has made over to another. Marx says correctly that one of the things that is key to us being humans is our ability to abstractly conceive of something and then to create it with our hands, right? To use labor um, to to make things, right? It's not the only thing that makes us human, but it's one of the things that makes us human because, of course, other animals can use tools and have capacity for abstract thought. Uh, And I think that that's something that we've all 
come to understand recently. But then back then, I think that, like specifically in the the role of labor and the transition of ape to man, um, mm-hmm. that was conceived of as the thing that separated man from ape was the ability to to use abstract thought and tools to to evolve. But that is what that's one of the key things that helped human beings evolve from ape to man, humankind, right? And Marx argues that wage labor divorces us from what it, it one of the things that makes us truly human. We become automatons, essentially, uh, selling a piece of us, a piece of our humanity, a very large piece of our humanity, to the capitalist class in order to survive. Zombified. Zombified, exactly. And um, I can attest to this fact that because I am unable to do anything that fulfills me as a human being, anything that gives me a purpose in my daily life, I feel uh, less than human oftentimes. Um, I feel I like a lot of the time I'm wandering through life and just taking up space until I die, you know? Yeah, like you're hollowed out, you're vacated, you're the, the thing that makes you a human, the, your subjective experience is just rooted out of you and you're just this husk of a, of a pers- person shambling around, going through the motions, fulfilling the things that you have to do uh, as dictated by the society to per- perpetuate your own existence. Feel It's zombified. If you, you feel like a fucking zombie. You, you feel like this animated corpse. And um, I think that, like, uh, another thing that McNally said in the Monsters of the Market book is that um, he talks about zombie imagery and where it comes into American popular culture. And it's much more interesting than I thought, I initially thought that it would be. Because when I think of a, a zombie, I think of it as a critique of American consumerism. Right? Um, yeah, which... which- I mean, that's, right. de- that, yeah. that's Dawn of the Dead. That's George A. Romero's Dawn right. of it, the it, Dead is really where that originates. It absolutely is. But initially, in popular culture, the zombie was the Haitian zombie, which was a slave who was made to do um, manual labor and was essentially nothing more than a body that mm. carried out labor. And uh, that zombie makes its way into American popular culture during the Great Depression. And um, it really resonated with workers during the Depression, like hyper-exploited workers during the Depression, and sort of became a fixture in fiction as a result of that. So here we've got the basic thesis of Gothic Marxism being that this low culture, these dime store novels or whatever, are getting at a very psychoanalytic point in that we feel like zombies, so zombie literature where a a voodoo priest or somebody that was probably very racistly portrayed in these novels. Yeah, probably. Um, probably. I'm just going to assume because it was the 1930s in the United States. But um, so a, a, a voodoo priest or whatever, a sorcerer or a witch or whatever, is enslaving people and forcing them to work. Well, sure. And like if the zombies get a hold of you, you're not like – they don't kill you, right? It's not like a pack of wolves. If the zombies get a hold of you, if you get swept up in the moment, you become a zombie, right? The fear of the zombies is that you see in them the the, the negative potential for your own future, right? 
that's that that's that that horrific imaginary uh, that allows you to construct the opposition to it. Right? You flee the zombie because you know that they're not just going to get you or whatever. That you're going to become one and you're st- stuck. So, and he he talks about how in the 1970s in sub-Saharan Africa, you see a resurrection of this zombie laborer trope as sub-Saharan Africa is subjected to the full frontal assault of neoliberalization. Mm. So this this idea of, I guess, in sub-Saharan African culture, you've got ideas of witches bewitching and consuming people, like eating them, right? Uh, cannibalism being involved. But there's a new trope that's of what David McNally was calling new witches, which are sort of combine this zombie trope where the witches bewitch people and turn them into zombies, sort of mm-hmm. in the same way that uh, the zombie trope entered into the United States. Because these sub-Saharan Africans are being, in urban centers in Africa, are being forced into wage labor for the first time. And, and being proletarianized, yeah. And this proletarianization makes them feel like zombies so this zombie trope sort of really resonates with them and what he says that uh we don't see that the source of capitalist wealth it's it's an occult mm-hmm. source it's hidden from us we don't see the labor that produces commodities and what marx does is re visibilizes the source of wealth in capitalism and the zombie laborer reminds us of that fact so here we've got a horror image being used to illustrate the point that Marx made in Capital, right? And um, I think that the, the, any way that we could use to help people understand that fact is good. And, I, I, and that's why I think this, this is useful. That's why I think this method of utilizing Gothic Marxism, I, I very much applaud the, uh, the horror vanguard. And I hope more people, I try to tell as many horror fans as I know about this so that they, they can get thinking about Marxism while they're thinking about horror, you know? Well, and that's why I think folks who talk about horror and people's interests in it as if it's just escapism, um, are really missing the mark because for a lot of us, it's actually a way to process our own exploitation, oppression, Mm -hmm. and quite frankly, trauma, right? So, you know, I think there's something to be said about, you know, the popularity of true crime, for instance, among women, right? Where the, where the, we are the primary victims of violence. Hey everyone, I just wanted to interrupt really quickly to let everyone know that we have created a Patreon account, and to ask you to please, if you feel so inclined, drop in and sign up. Right now we've only got one tier for $2, and it is purely a voluntary, out of the goodness of your own heart kind of donation. Uh, We don't have any special content to offer yet, but we are planning on doing that in the future. As for now, we just felt like we needed to solicit donations in order to be able to pay for our hosting fees and for stuff like 
microphones and maybe getting a mixing board so we can record in the same room and do interviews and stuff like that. Anyway, if you feel so inclined, please go to our Patreon. It is patreon.com front slash the regrettable century and check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all under the regrettable century. All right, back to the episode. Okay, so right, I, I think there's something to be said about, you know, uh, that sort of interest. In the same way that I think, you know, there's this resurgence of movies about witchcraft, right? Because it enables us to process historically a lot of the ways in which we've been oppressed. Most of that centered around our reproductive capacity and our reproductive labor, right? Um like ensuring that we can't control our reproductive capacity. And so much of um, accusations of witchcraft center around that, center around like accusations of infanticide, center around participating in sexual deviancy or helping others participate in sexual deviancy. I think there's this one um, really good example of like women who are accused of being witches because they were helping other women bleed on their wedding night because they had already had sex of course like this goes back to like the myth of the hymen or whatever right i'm not gonna get into it but you know some of the women who were killed during the witch trials right were were helping figure out ways to ensure that like women could bleed on their wedding nights right so like it's wild the lengths at which you know men have gone historically to make sure that, you know, we have no control of our own sexuality and to ensure that the nuclear family is, is put into place. Right. Um, and I think some of the films that have illustrated that best, uh, are like the witch and, um, hell yeah. The autopsy of Jane Doe, you know, is a much better film than a lot of people give it credit for. Now I think I think that that um that reconnects back around to what you you said before and sort of like um supports the point that you made that uh the origins I I don't, uh, I don't know if that's entirely like maybe historically true but uh, like the the best of the genre is rooted in uh, uh oppressed peoples because or the experiences of oppressed peoples and the expressions of oppressed peoples because I I think the the the, the best of um, cultural expressions of the dark and the horrific are those that are expressions of those who have experienced true suffering. And yeah, I mean, if that's going to be given a sort of collective expression, that's necessarily going to be the expression of those who are uh, the most uh, subjected to the most suffering in society. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of uh, in Gothic literature and film you often have the monsters being portrayed. I don't know if I don't know about accidentally, but being portrayed in a um, in a positive light. So sympathetic, yeah, in a sympathetic yeah. light, right? Um, and the 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 film that pops into my head when thinking about this is the uh, George mm-hmm. Romero's Land of the Dead, where the zombies are being forced to fight each other, and uh, you start to see that like even though they're these hollowed out former humans, 
they've got intelligence and they're learning to adapt. And um, there's this amazingly cathartic moment in the film where uh, the zombies get into the tower where the rich people are and the, the rich people have been sort of forcing everyone else to live in squalor and to deal with the zombies while they're in this elevated tower. And, oh, spoiler alert, I guess, uh, you know, if you haven't seen this, it came out like 20 years ago. So if you haven't seen this movie, then, you know, yeah, you're yeah. safe. <laughs> Go um, for it. Fucking uh, the zombies get in and they devour all the rich people. And there's this one scene where the one main zombie who's leading all the other zombies sort of makes eye contact with this, rebel protagonist of the movie and they kind of like have this moment where they're like all right bro so it's like a solidarity with zombies kind of moment which i i think is kind of badass and i think that super underrated yeah exactly yeah and uh uh, i i think i remember um maybe there was a positive review of this in the socialist worker or something back then uh, and uh they talked about george romero's radicalism because uh, if you really think about like Night of the Living Dead too, and this is this is not a, an original observation. I, I've heard this somewhere, and it might have been David McNally. The hero of the film is a black man. He's the only one who's not constantly losing his shit. All of the white people are freaking the fuck out and c- doing stupid things to get them killed, and he's the only one that is able to hold shit down. And then finally. Right, the good old boy sheriff shows up with this posse right. and kills him. Yeah, the, yeah. The the real well, horror and... is what humans do to each other. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's. I think that that's one of the main points that Romero is making in all of his yeah. films. Well, I don't know if it was McNally who brought this up, or there's another really good podcast um, called Faculty of Horror, and I know they've discussed this. And I know Romero has denied casting him because he was black, or mm-hmm. he just said he was the best actor for the part. Regardless, that's what liberals um, would say. When, he didn't. I don't see. Regardless, that. I just ask people. When you, yeah. <laughs> regardless, when you put out art, it yeah. doesn't belong to you anymore. I'm sorry. Exactly. Um, Whatever his intentions were, it, the, the product was a radical. Right. It, it belongs to the people, right? Um, but but I I, I want to say it was Faculty of Horror. They brought up um, that that actually the reason why he was able to keep his cool is because of the trauma that black folks experience oh, it is inherent yeah. to their, their attempt to survive just their daily lives. Right. So it makes sense that all of these other people are kind of flipping out some over like really insignificant things. Um, and it's been probably 15 to 20 years since I watched that film at a slumber party, you know? So I, you know, I, I can't recall, but I do remember feeling like, what the <laughs> fuck are these gringos doing like the entire time? Why people be like and that, And stressing though? the fuck <laughs> out. Oh, trust me. I know you guys. Uh, Jason and I uh, saw that movie relatively recently projected on the side of a, a mausoleum in a cemetery in Los Angeles. It was pretty I was fucking I going to say, like... That's... Yeah. It's... That's very gothic. As a, as a Marxist... <laughs> I would say that's the most gothic way to watch a movie. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of as a goth, sort of the. I would say that's the most Marxist way to watch a movie. That's sort of a, the point of this as a method of cultural critique is that meaning can be contested, and it's it's up to Marxists to take this expression of culture and utilize it to get our point across, right? 
because this is a, this is a contested territory. It is. It would be very easy for the right to own horror and goth and gothic themes and gothic subjects because it plays into the uh, nihilism and um, cynicism of yeah. rightist ideologies, right? And solipsism. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. because you can take pretty much any horror movie and uh, take some sort of Hobbesian interpretation where, see, this is just the, the, the end result of man left to his own devices and it's horror, you know? If we leave, if we leave horror to the right, that's what happens. Right? Yeah, I mean that's that's the bow on that one, <laughs> and that's that on that. Now, yeah, no, I mean, I mean that really does um, uh, circle back to. I remember broadly making that that point early um, in in this discussion was of the you can't just leave any aspect of human expression, which is culture, uh, aggregated into culture, <laughs> uh, to the right. Like, uh, uh, by saying, oh, this is easy for the right to tap into, therefore anybody who likes this is uh, reactionary or bad, you're, you're suppressing an aspect of what it is to be human in order to try to valorize, you know, your concept of uh, materialism into this distortion of, of what Marxism is really trying to say or really trying to, uh, really trying to do. And you are uh, making enemies out of potential leftists. I've got some concrete examples of the right utilizing these themes. So we know firsthand in the post 9-11 world that fear and horror are incredibly powerful motivators um watching the towers come down and the people falling out of the towers and uh burning corpses like falling out of the twin towers on live television was a pretty horrific thing to see fear is a powerful motivator and no one knows how to use fear better than the right does specifically fascists are terrified of everything and they tell you about it in no uncertain terms. <laughs> it's true. It's like the, the entire essence of the, especially the American right in the present moment is about the fear of like literally everything. So, I mean, Hitler utilized Gothic, Gothic themes all the time in his speeches and in Mein Kampf. Hitler is a very terrified person. He, um, the way he portrays social democracy as a uh, as an insidious spiritual form, and trade unions are instruments of terror wielded at, at the national economy and the national health. He refers to his political enemies, which are primarily Jews, as uh, forces of decay. Hitler takes all of his enemies, and you'll find parallels to this in the uh, modern right as well, and bunches them all up together. So you've got the Jewish conspiracy that is simultaneously a Bolshevik conspiracy to um, nationalize and redistribute wealth while being also a capitalist conspiracy to rob the working class blind. It's a, uh, a conspiracy 
of homosexuals that are trying to uh, tear down uh, traditional masculinity while at the same time... I'm here for that, too. <laughs> well, that's just a matter Homosexuals of trying to tear down <laughs> traditional... don't care about your heteronormative feelings. <laughs> tear down traditional masculinity while at the same time have sex with our pure Aryan wives, right? Um, trying to cuck us. They tell you what they're afraid of in their language, That's true. It's, right? It's very unambiguous. More than anything else. Yeah, more than anything else, the fascists, modern fascists, are afraid of someone having sex with their non-existent girlfriends. Which is to say that they have <laughs> fully internalized the capacity what? to imagine a horrific future and thus to construct the real opposition to that future. Exactly. And, and, well, not to over Freudian it, it but like I, I feel like it. There's I believe also the term is maybe Freudialize. Yeah, Freudialize it is. Uh, I mean, I maybe maybe even a, a more a, a, a more fundamentally, they're afraid of their own desires for being cucked in the same way. Like I'm honestly like. You know? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you might be onto something there. But anyway, so, like, I kind of wanted to just show some examples here. Like, I mean, specifically, and this is something that we're still dealing, still dealing with nowadays, that the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy now is called cultural Marxism. And it is this ever-changing conspiracy capable of an endless mimesis, you know? adapting to fit into whatever form it needs to in order to accomplish its insidious goals, right? So cultural Marxism is the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy in new terminology. It is in no uncertain terms the same anti-Semitic, anti-communist sort of rhetoric that Hitler used. In doing this, like, so Hitler said that the Jew was an anti-man a creature of another god, a creature outside of nature, and alien to nature. And does that make you think of any brightest descriptions of uh, marginalized people? Specifically, in my mind, the thing that pops in is transgendered people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to Hitler, the Jew is an invisible carrier of death. And to modern rightists... The cultural Marxist, the uh, the liberal, the whomever it is that they were tr they are trying to demonize is this same thing. Um, so to Hitler, the monsterization of the Jew is he uses Gothic imagery in order to do this. He re he refers to all the time Jews as uh, vampires that suck the blood of the people, and to the red monster that torments. Uh, the beloved people to despair or Marxism as conceived of the brain of a monster, not a man like Karl Marx was a Jew. So obviously, right. Um, and the, the Weimar Republic as a monster child and democracy and parliamentarism as having created a monstrosity of excrement, excrement and fire. I mean, it's, it's like incredibly vivid, like motivating, moving language, you know? Right acknowledging that it's like being deployed okay, for the most nefarious purposes you know that there are 
Like, I can't help but just, like, be find it striking, you know? Right. I mean, it is. And it's incredibly motivating. Um, so there's a, a strain in Gothic literature and in uh, Gothic film of the early 20th century in Europe that is incredibly anti-Semitic. And I think that uh, the author of this article, which I will post in the show notes, whose name I do not remember right now, he uh, refers to the sensibilities of, uh, of 20th century Gothic literature and film as being fascist sensibilities. And he talks about the film Nosferatu, who travels and brings plague with him, brings rats with him specifically, and those rats bring plague as uh, being sort of uh, uh, evocative of the kind of language that Nazis would later use to talk about Jews and as can I mean, be found in the Eternal Jew, the film, the Eternal Jew. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was about to say that. Yeah. Um, so if you look, if you watch Nosferatu, which I haven't done in a while, but I definitely remember from uh, the, the film about the making of Nosferatu where um, John Malkovich plays F.W. Murnau. And I don't remember what it was called. Uh, something about, Something about a vampire, but uh, the typical German rom com. <laughs> the typical German town is under foreign threat, and he is saved by a heroic German woman's sacrifice. And the monstrous threat is brought to that town by the dealing of property. So this foreigner from the east, who's got exaggerated features, which the Nazis would later use to characterize Jews. Mm-hmm. buys up property in the town and then uses it as a base to corrupt and feed upon the local population. <laughs> so Nosferatu is one of the coolest movies I've ever seen. And at the same time really feeds into these fascist themes that were developing right around this same time, not fascist themes. These are specifically Nazi themes, right? That are developing right yeah. around the same times. And uh, there's a proliferation of vampire themes in the 1920s and 30s that Hitler is able to reference to talk about the Jews and communists, which he sees as the same thing, right? You know, we don't have to abstractly conceive of fascists utilizing Gothic themes. We've got them. We've got a a very concrete example in Hitler using Gothic themes very successfully. If we ignore this very important aspect of what it is that makes us human, we do so to our peril. Video games train the kids for war. Only she can have fashion stores. Life orders don't adjust. This is filled with the rich to love. Assassination politics. Violence rules within our well, ignorance is their power too. You only know what they want you to know. But television cannot lie. Controlling media is most great eyes. The real politicians picture show. The actors lousy, but the blind are 